Hi, and welcome to the Family Business Podcast. I'm your host, Russ Hayworth, and in each episode, I will discuss and explore the key challenges facing family businesses today. As a family business advisor, I'm passionate about helping families to overcome the complex and unique challenges that come from being in business together. So if what I cover in the show resonates with you, I'm here to help, and I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me at fanbizpodcast.com forward slash work with Russ. You can also sign up to the newsletter there and receive the latest blogs, podcasts and videos directly in your inbox. I would like to thank my friends at the Institute for Family Business for their continuing support for what I'm doing with this show. The IFB is a unique community of family businesses with common challenges, interests, values and goals. To find out more about their work, visit ifb.org.uk. Let's get on with the show. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's show. I hope you're doing well. We are concluding the series on family wealth in this episode and it's a really interesting and fascinating conversation with Stephanie Brobby from the Good Ancestor Movement and I won't ruin it too much but there's a lot of really thought-provoking um, responses from Stephanie in this uh, interview that I think you'll find really interesting so looking forward to bringing you that before I do so thank you to everyone who has been getting in touch particularly off the back of this series to say how much they're enjoying it um, it is a shorter series so only four episodes in this um, particular uh, phase of the podcast I will be having a short break again uh, in between series and the next series that I'll be bringing you will be uh, here in a few weeks time so um, don't worry I haven't uh, fallen asleep or anything like that I am uh, still keen to bring you lots more uh, interesting uh, conversations and content um, but just having a bit of a break for the next few weeks on recording Thank you also to everyone who is signing up for the newsletter. If you are listening to this show on the day it um, was released, you've just missed the latest month's um, newsletter. Uh, but please do head over to the podcast website, which is fanbizpodcast.com. And on the front page there, you just scroll down a little bit, there is a form to fill in where I ask for your name and email address and you can be added to the list. Um, just another point on that is there are some uh, occurrences where the confirmation email where you need to click to, to confirm you want to join the mailing list is ending up in people's spam folders. So if you do sign up to the newsletter and you don't receive an email from me saying please click on this link, um, just check your spam or junk folders and uh, the email is likely to be in there. Right, as I say, a really interesting conversation now with Stephanie Brobby. I will um, hand over to that now and hope you enjoy it. Well, hello everyone and welcome to this week's show. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Stephanie Brobby today, who is the founder of the Good Ancestor Movement. And we are going to be talking about that in uh, some detail during the show but firstly Stephanie welcome to the show. Thank you it's great to be here today. And to kick us off what would be really great is if you could explain to our audience who you are and how you came to be doing what you're doing today and then we can get into some of the detail around what the Good Ancestor Movement is and um, how people can find out more about that. Sure happy to. 
Um, so I grew up, I'm a very proud Londoner. I grew up in Shepherd's Bush and Hammersmith sort of area. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I grew up there with my, my family, um, lived in a you know, very working class community. My parents uh, were migrants from Ghana and they came over here in the 80s and settled in this little corner of West London. Um, and I always had quite a strong passion for justice as I was growing up and ended up in sort of various arguments with teachers and parents and other relatives. Um, and when I was 16, I decided I wanted to become a human rights lawyer. And um, uh, so I went to I studied law, I did some work experience, um, and then I ended up uh, following graduation, I ended up being offered a training contract at a city firm um, and thought it was an amazing opportunity and really liked um, the kind of composition of the firm and the different departments that they had. So I thought I'd give that a crack. And um, I ended up qualifying into private client, um, private wealth. And this took me by surprise because um, I wasn't expecting to be so captivated by private wealth as, as an area of law um, and as, I guess, an intellectual discipline. But it was really the, uh, I was so drawn to the complexity of human relationships and uh, that kind of really close up examination of um, an individual's relationship to wealth. And uh, I just found it fascinating. So I was delighted to qualify way back in uh, 2011 and kind of developed my practice from there, really. And, um, you know, I, I really used to skip into work and I, I loved what I did. And I had a fantastic team. I was fortunate to sort of work with probably some of the nicest lawyers in the square mile and uh, with whom I enjoy great relationships to this day. Um, but over time, I, I, I felt like I had an itch that I needed to scratch. And, um, you know, that sort of justice, passion for justice that I, um, that had kind of directed me into the, the legal industry wasn't being kind of nurtured and cultivated. So I looked at uh, getting involved in um, various kind of social sector initiatives. I sat on a couple of boards. I joined a philanthropic community um, and I, yeah, I, I was um, kind of on this incredible career trajectory and, you know, partnership was the next step for me. And as I was growing my practice and was becoming, you know, developing a, a re good reputation in, in the industry, uh, but I just couldn't help but think there was something else out there that I might want to do with my life. And I was beginning to sort of tap more into, you know, what, what's my broader purpose and, you know, asking those questions beyond job titles and industries. Um, and what I soon discovered was what I was really passionate about was um, working alongside values-driven wealth holders. So wealthy individuals and families that have really strong values around society and what justice looks like, what they, you know, have a really clear idea about what they want the world to look like. And I really wanted to partner with them and, and support them in achieving their objectives around values-led wealth stewardship and radical redistribution. But what I realized was um, it would have been very difficult for me to live that out 
where I was positioned in the private wealth industry as a lawyer uh, because of the constraints of, of that industry. And I can talk about that a little bit more um, later. But um, essentially, I, I ended up leaving my job in July 2021 and launched the Good Ancestor Movement in September. Um, so it's all been very exciting. Yeah, um, and a very challenging time to be doing it in, given the um, obviously the global pandemic and, and all the kind of restrictions um, around that side. And also to give the, the audience a, a flavour for those that perhaps aren't familiar with the career trajectory within, say, law firms, the, the majority of lawyers would, would perhaps aspire to that partnership route in terms of that being a, a pinnacle in their career and a way for them to kind of achieve their own aspirations. And that, from what you were saying there, was very much the kind of next step within the law um, or legal profession for you. And yet for you, it didn't, that didn't feel like the right step. Is that right? It, it felt as if actually your um, purpose, which I know is something we're going to come on and, and talk about a bit more later on, was more or better suited to what you're doing now with the Good Ancestor Movement. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was. It's really interesting because people will often ask me, "Oh, you know, why, why didn't you take partnership? Or, uh, you know, you're so brave to do this and to um, effectively stop your, you know, successful career in its tracks." But it, it didn't feel like that to me because kind of, I suppose, the three years preceding um, taking the big leap to leave and start the Good Ancestor Movement, I had been on this journey of really trying to understand what, you know, what is my purpose beyond being a senior associate at, you know, a law firm practicing private wealth. And um, because I, I guess I was just drawn to needing something deeper to sustain me in this in this life I guess um and so I was I did a lot of deep thinking around you know what my uh how my experience and my own story lends itself to uh, you know support supporting individuals and families and um what I was really passionate about what I really cared about um in life uh, but at the end of the day, what, what happened and, you know, I, I, I did some coaching, uh, a, a book that had a profound impact on me was Start With Why by Simon Sinek, um, which is all about how great leaders inspire others to take action by communicating why they do what they do. Um, very powerful book, um, which really transformed things for me and, and really liberated me, actually it gave me so much freedom to think beyond the constraints of um, you know, the, the kind of corporate ladder and, um, and job titles and things. Um, and so as I began to sort of develop my thinking around what subsequently became, you know, the basis for the Good Ancestor movement, you know, the role of private capital in the world today in, in the context of the challenges that we face, I developed such a compelling vision um, for this work and for my life in this work, um, that it just didn't, it was a no brainer in the end. Um, it just, um, was just the net, natural next step to do. Of course, it was incredibly, <laughs> incredibly brave and um, to hand in my notice and, uh, and, and actually follow through with it. But it just, it just felt like a natural evolution of what I was supposed to do. 
Yeah, and and uh, I can um, relate to that because uh, I mean I I moved from an employed role to my own business um, in April twenty twenty as well, so kind of right at the beginning of the the pandemic. So I I understand both the the drive and the passion of creating something that's truly what you want to be doing versus um, perhaps the um, expectations or the um, the biases that those around us who obviously care for us a lot, um, but would be saying, well, you know, are you sure you're doing the right thing? And like this, this again, for you in that career path to step away from that for some people would seem illogical, would seem kind of crazy in some respects. But I think the really important aspect of that and in part of your story, which again, we'll, we'll get onto in terms of the work you're doing with the Good Ancestor Movement is that you spent the time understanding what was really important to you and what was core to your beliefs and your values. And you're now living that through the Good Ancestor Movement. I think that's a really important message because it is all too easy for us to get caught up in the expectation and kind of societal norms around how we do stuff and how the world should and, and does work. But actually, I think what you're doing with that example there and the work you're doing with the Good Ancestor Movement is trying to offer alternatives to that and say, actually, there's another way of doing stuff. Would that be fair? Totally. And I think such something that was so key for me was actually you know, we're so caught up in professional services about being efficient and maximizing our time. And, you know, you're always really busy, you're developing your practice, trying to get the law right, you know, looking after clients and, uh, you know, thinking about business development initiatives. You, do, you just don't have the headspace really to think about what do I, you know, what do I want in life? What's important to me? And am I living in alignment with that? And so I really had to be very intentional about creating space in my life to reflect on those things before I was then able to understand where I wanted to go um, and to take those steps. Mm. And we've also mentioned a number of times that the result of that was you establishing the, the Good Ancestor Movement. Just, just give us an overview of what that is and, and um, what it is that you do now, and then we can perhaps dig into some more of the, the detail around it. Sure, yeah. So the Good Ancestor Movement is a social purpose business and a wealth advisory consultancy that supports values-led individuals and families and their advisors um, with regenerative wealth practices. Um, so we support people um, to, to kind of focus on wealth minimization and, and radical redistribution um, so that they can be part of building a new economy that works for both people and planet. Um, so we're really... Uh, different kind of um, wealth advisory firm that um, really supports people to people that have strong values around society and the, the economy and you know they want to live in a fairer world and they want to be part of creating that but they're not quite sure how to do that and how and the role that their wealth plays in that and so um, we help people kind of develop quite uh, countercultural and uh, bold wealth plans which focus on redistribution. Um, often our clients will come to us with a sense of, um, you know, they, they feel that they have too much money, which is, is really interesting. And, you know, people always ask me, oh, do you actually have any clients? And, you know, we do. These people exist and they, you know, maybe they don't externalize these thoughts, um, you know, 
all the time, but, you know, they're having that conversation quietly in their minds or, you know, maybe with the odd friend, but they're not sure what to do. And they don't feel that they have the agency to bring their uh, desires and objectives regarding their wealth to life. Um, so we um, offer sort of two main services. The, the first, you know, I already mentioned the sort of supporting people with these wealth plans and helping to coordinate um, their advisors to give them the advice that they they need in order to realize their objectives. Um, typically, it looks like supporting people to come up with a strategy which helps them decrease their wealth over time and start uh, shifting some of their capital into community-led initiatives and um, resourcing sort of social movements and grassroots organizations which are on the front lines of creating the change that we need in in our economy and in our society. Um, and then we, we offer a range of kind of educational programs and workshops for wealth holders um, to help them understand um, the dominant economic systems and narratives of our time, as well as the multiple social and ecological crises we're facing, so that they can then take those learnings and apply them to their wealth stewardship and redistribution practices. Um, and we also offer training um, for their advisors to help them understand um, their perspectives and motives. Um, you know, a lot of our clients have really progressive views. You know, they're prepared to cap, cap their wealth and, you know, they want their people that want to pay their taxes in full. And so I think it's often quite difficult to, um, you know, as, as an advisor, uh, to engage in conversations like that, which are so countercultural to what you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and so we're equipping um, advisors with, with what they need in order to um, have these conversations and deliver their clients' objectives. The, the image that's popped into my mind when, when you're talking about um, training an advisor and working with advisors is um, from the film Top Gun when Maverick says he's going to pull, pull the brakes and let the other plane fly straight past and Goose just screams, you're going to do what? I can kind of imagine that where, where clients are going to their advisors and going, we want to give all of our money away. And it's like, what's happened here? Because it is, it is counterintuitive and it is... I mean, just the the phrase you were saying there about the the reduction in wealth is mm. entirely counterintuitive to how the vast majority of professional services are set up. They're there to help clients maximise wealth and minimise tax, and the the kind of the system, if you like, is geared towards that. So I can imagine there's some very interesting discussions with um, existing advisors around the fact that um, their clients might want to give some of their money away. Yeah, it's, I mean, I find it fascinating just from, a, I guess, a sociological point of view that, that how strong culture, I mean, it's such an example of how strong culture is and how important it is because, you know, you talked about the private wealth industry as a system and we very much regard it as a system um, which is designed to help people uh, preserve and accumulate wealth and to minimize taxes. That's, those are the, you know, the rules of the game and um, the worldview within that system is that that's entirely legitimate and, and always going to be the end goal for everyone um, with some exceptions. But um, yes, we're in, in some ways, we're, we're a bit of a, we act as a bit of a, a translator in a way, someone that can really speak to the client's uh, motives and objectives and the things that, you know, 
really trouble them and, and, and what their values actually mean to them so that the advisors can then kind of embed those those values and intentions ac- across their wealth stewardship and the management of their mm. tax affairs. And are you seeing a shift in terms of the, the kind of control within that advisor-client dynamic where clients are being far more aware of what they're values are and that actually some of the stuff around wealth maximization and and tax efficiency is counterintuitive to what they're doing whereas and clients are speaking up about that and going actually that's not that's not quite what i want Uh, against the kind of the advisory community passing down because this is what they're there for and as we say from a systematic point of view or systemic point of view to save tax, to maximise wealth, this is the right thing to do. This is what the textbook says we should be advising people to do because it's this is how we justify our fees and our existence. But the shift, it, do you see it happening where there's far more sort of power and control put in the client's hands because they're more aware of how their values are aligned to what they're doing? Because there is just more transparency, there seems now as, as part of you know, as we evolve technology and communications and things like that, is that having an impact on where people are addressing these issues with their wealth? Yeah, I think so. I think particularly, you know, the past two years, I can't believe it's two years, but uh, with the pandemic and, you know, there was definitely this increase, you know, almost like an avalanche of people thinking, what what is my money invested in and what's it doing? And, Um, you know, I think people tend to think about their investments first and how, how their wealth is growing and what kinds of, um, corporations they're investing in. Um, and so I think, I I do think there's been a, a greater sense of agency around asking the questions, but, but it's, it seems to me that it's, it's kind of quite limited at the moment because, perhaps people don't know the, the right sorts of questions to ask. And then the advisor doesn't really know exactly what the client wants in terms of, you know, what they want to know and what's going to allay any fears or provide a kind of, you know, plausible explanation. So then you end up with this really disconnected exchange between the advisor and the client. So we're not quite there yet, but I do think that there is a, there's a lot more awareness and people are thinking more about, well, how, How's my money affecting the climate? And you know, more recently, concerns around um, what what their money might be fueling in terms of um, the Ukrainian-Russian war. Um, so I, I think it's part of a general kind of cultural shift, actually. Mm-hmm. And you've called the business the good ancestor movement. What is it to you that makes a good ancestor, and why did you? you decide on that as a um, name for the business? So I, when I was a lawyer and, um, you know, I would help people kind of set up uh, charitable foundations or, you know, have conversations around giving. And it, it really struck me that kind of consistently there was always this attachment to the idea of legacy, which, you know, is something that would come up a lot you know, as a private wealth lawyer, you're helping people anticipate um, death and, and how they want to be remembered and, and what they want to happen, how they want to distribute their assets. Um, but it, it just, I, it used to play on my mind. And I think, well, how, 
how can we sort of choose to curate our own legacy as individuals in the world? Because we're, we're all having an impact and, you know, we might not see it day to day, uh, but we, you know, we, we don't know how the impact of our actions and our behaviours is, is going to impact the world when we leave it. And so the idea of, you know, this kind of counter uh, proposal to, to think to actually aspire to being a good ancestor is a kind of direct challenge to the idea that we can sort of pick and choose and curate how we're remembered. Um, maybe it, maybe it reflects how we're remembered by some, but not you know if we think more broadly in terms of like how the earth will remember us, <laughs> um, and, and more importantly, future generations in in the world that we leave behind. Um, so that's what I wanted to, ca I just think the concept of, you know, being a good ancestor or trying to be a good ancestor is such a beautiful way of framing the idea of legacy. Um, and I think, you know, when thinking about what it means to be a good ancestor, it's such an expansive idea. But, but where I am at the moment is that it's a, really about envisaging a world that we would like to leave to future generations. And that could be, you know, Great grandchildren, it could be great nieces and their children, godchildren, you know, anyone really. When you, I, I often, you know, when having these conversations, get people to think about someone that they love, you know, a child that they love, and then try and think about that child's grandchildren, you know, far into the future, and what what's the world? How do you want the world to look like and and feel like, you know, for them? And is it going to you know, how are we doing? Are we going to get there? What are we doing about it? So I think it's really about, yeah, envisaging that world that we want to leave to our loved ones and doing the best that we can with our time, our resources, um, and our relationships to, to really build that world in alignment with what's really, you know, what we say is important to us. Um, and it's about carrying an awareness and, you know, being mindful of the future and that there are going to be future generations. And I think sometimes that, you know, or almost certainly it demands an openness, you know, uh, demands from us an openness to new ideas and recognizing that times are changing and, um, and actually that in order to build the world that we want to see and that we want to live, leave, um, that that might demand some sacrifice, you know, on our part um, in order to achieve that change. So, yeah, I think ultimately it's about wanting to leave the, the world in better, you know, in better shape than yeah, um, absolutely. for those that will inherit it after us. Yeah, and I like, so, so I have a, um, a belief around legacy and, and impacts, and I think legacy kind of happens after we we're gone. We, we almost don't control that bit. What we can control is the impact that we can have whilst we're alive. And so I think focusing in terms of the impact that wealth can have, because it can become a fantastic enabler for really positive impact across society. And again, in terms of the kind of um, societal norms around growing wealth for future generations, what I believe would be happening in the families that you're working with and perhaps you can confirm or otherwise is that you get different types of engagement across generations when they're seeing the impact that their wealth can have on society and the causes in society that need greater support because 
typically if you're growing wealth and you you kind of had that mindset of it's just you know the balloon's getting bigger and bigger and bigger in terms of that wealth but actually redistributing it and having that positive impact is setting that example for others to be able to follow yeah i mean i think so much of it is about different perspectives it's interesting you, you know you talk about growing wealth for future generations well what what is wealth? Is it better to pass on a huge monetary sum or to maybe redistribute and share some of that capital so that we can invest in a, a future where our planet is not on fire and is, is going to cope, you know, become more ecologically resilient um, so that our future generations can live in some degree of comfort and safety? Um, and people have different perspectives on this, you know, um, and different ideas about what's possible and what just is the way it is and, you know, different capacities to uh, take on new ideas. And um, so it's, it's interesting to, to see that across different families. And you've mentioned a, a couple of times, we've, we've, we've been talking about it a couple of times in terms of sort of values led and purpose-driven families or, or individuals that are looking to do this. And purpose and values seem to be something that's quite popular in, in a sense of, you know, organisations saying we are purpose-driven. And I, I believe that's a positive. I believe overall there's a, there's a good movement towards sort of purpose-led and purpose-driven business and families. But also it can become a bit of a buzzword if we're not careful. And so how do you help families to really focus in on their values and their purpose so that it becomes something that is true to them? Yeah, I think that's a really good question because it, I, particularly with, the, with values, we, we talk about values a lot, but actually it can be, they can be really intangible unless you really explore deeply like what they mean in the world, but, but what they mean to you, because people can have share similar values, but they manifest differently. And, you know, um, so I think it's about, it's really about creating space for people to, you know, understand themselves, understand their histories, you know, their personal um, stories and what's shaped. I'm so fascinated by you know, everyone has different approaches to how our economy should function and what society should look like and, you know, philanthropy and wealth redistribution and, uh, you know, let's do philanthropy over paying our taxes, you know, that, that kind of thing. Everyone has this, these different values. And, and I think it's really important to take people through a process of understanding themselves deeply and then understanding what what's important to them as an idea but then trying to translate that idea through what's happening in the world and um, the things that they're worried about, all the things they're excited about and the things that they, that would make them feel proud. You know, that's something we often ask people is if you were to look back in 20 years time or something, what, um, what would you feel most proud of, you know, um, if you do X, Y, or Z with your wealth and redistribute in this way. So I think it's, it's a process of, learning and unlearning and and really um i think a real commitment to honesty as well about you know what what really matters to us and and it's it's a it's such an individual process but 
Um, yeah, so I think that that's really important in, t- in terms of values and, and purpose. I think I think we probably, in the context of the Good Ancestor Movement, we provide quite helpful framing for that. And I have made a very strategic choice to to rework really with individuals and families who I consider to be the innovators and the early adopters of this movement towards using capital to build the new economy that we need, that build an economy that is going to uh, really serve the life-sustaining um, systems of the planet and to meet the, to quote Kate Rayworth, to meet um, human all human needs within planetary boundaries. Um, and And so we're really concerned with empowering and supporting people to sort of embody this idea of the regenerative economy a new economy which is fundamentally more regenerative and distributive where um, resources are shared more fairly so within that framing you know i lots of other people are sort of in the impact space are focused on uh maybe engaging with the current systems um, and reforming them, trying to um, change existing, change and improve existing systems. Whereas we're very much, as an organisation, our strategy is to focus on helping people to build the new. So I think it's, it's really about, um, you know, having an honest conversation with with the people that we engage with and saying, well, this is this is what we're about. And if you're on board with with that, then you know you can come and, and, and sit within that, that broader purpose to work on your own and, and we'll support you to do that. So, um, yeah, I think it's, it's about the framing, really. One of the um, phrases you used earlier is around wealth minimization rather than maximising wealth. And how difficult or easy is it to help families explore how much is enough, in inverted commas, around... You know, is there a magic figure for each family as to how much wealth is enough to support everything that they want to do from a personal perspective so that they understand how much they can then look to redistribute and how much they can afford to to put towards the causes that um, you help them to to discover? How do you go about that process? Because I, I can imagine there's quite a lot of nervousness and reluctance from some families of are, are we... We want to do great things, but are we doing ourselves a disservice by, you know, we don't want to run out of money, but have, you know, done great things whilst we do it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the, uh, it's almost the, the beating heart of what we do is helping individuals and families to explore this question, like how much is enough? And then the question that sits alongside that, how much is too much? And I mean, just before I explain what we do, I should probably explain the, the rationale because often, often people get very thrown by the idea of wealth minimization. So it's this idea that, you know, we in the, in the dominant economic system, people can create lots, you know, and accumulate lots of wealth, um, typically in the context of kind of extraction of natural resources and, you know, the exploitation of labor. And that's generally how our wider economy functions. And so there, you know, there can be a lot of harm that's done in the process of creating and amassing wealth. And then some people will choose to redistribute through philanthropy, um, you know, to, to share some of their wealth 
Whereas what we're saying is, is actually that there's a, you can live in a, a different way where perhaps you're not extracting so much from the planet and from communities and people and actually live more in balance with, with the planet and with, with society. Um, and so it's, it's about really helping people to decenter their relationship to philanthropy, which can be a very emotional connection and to think more broadly, what's the nature of my economic participation and my economic behavior. Um, and so, yes, and so it's, it's interesting when we, you know, help people who, who really want to think about living within kind of sustainable means for themselves as, as a family, as, as a system, um, and thinking about how they can share some of the wealth that they regard as excess. Um, and I, you, no, you know, no, no two families are the same and it's an entirely subjective question, how much is enough, but really I think the starting point is helping them to understand what they feel they need to live on. And this is a process that we undertake with, you know, zero judgment. It's just really providing that container and space for people to examine their lifestyles, their aspirations, the things that they might be building towards, um, and, you know, to, to question what, you know, what their lifestyle means in the context of the values that they espouse and the kind of life that they want to live. Um, and so it's really, a, it's quite, I would describe it as a sort of push and pull sort of exercise where, you know, there's focus on what they're actually doing, but then here are my values on the other side. And this is the future that, you know, that I envisage for the world and for society. And how do I, what's my part in 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 shaping that and you know most of the people that we work with you know they don't want to be contributing to extreme inequality by accumulating more than they need but you know as you quite rightly point out they don't want to be living in penury and you know there's real pressure points around um end of life care and you know medical care and that sort of thing and also wanting to make provision for children, maybe grandchildren, but, you know, mainly children. And, and again, thinking how much is too much? You know, I don't want to disempower my children. I want them to have some drive and some incentive to um, build their own lives um, and be self-sufficient to some extent. But I also want to help them because I can. And so um, it's not an exact science and um, is really, I think, uh, yeah, just a combination of lots of challenging conversations and and you know really weighing up what what their desires are against what their values are and and the world that they want to create and i guess as well that's where uh, their existing advisors can come into the mix if they've got people like financial planners and and lawyers who can talk them through the kind of implications of that and almost show them what what that's going to look like going forward it gives them the reassurance that that's something that is is doable Exactly. And that's why it's, it's, you know, we're not, a, we're not regulated. We, so we don't do any, you know, formal legal advice or any financial planning advice. We're really just there to support people around this, that, you know, the values piece and, and implementing their, um, helping to implement their redistribution um, journeys. But, but the, the reason why we always involve a financial planner is to make sure that there is this evidence basis and, uh, you know, for, choosing to retain, you know, X amount of wealth and, and choosing to, re, you know, focus on redistributing excess wealth. Um, and that's, that's a really critical piece in the puzzle because it, 
it, it shows what's possible and that you can play around with lots of different assumptions. It can be a kind of live exercise um, with, um, yeah, shifting different assumptions. And, and, but ultimately, there is a piece of work that has been done which in, indicates actually you're going to be fine <laughs> and you're, you're going to be more than fine um, if you choose to, to take this step. And then, you know, there's work that we have to do around, well, what, 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 what can we do to help mitigate any, you know, feelings of regret that might surface in the future? Like, I, you know, I could have had more money and could have done more things, more holidays and more, you know, um, yeah, had they, they would have had more spending power, I suppose, um, financial planners would say. And, and that's the thing, in a, in a culture where we've all been socialised to keep acquiring more, keep spending more, keep doing more, you're, you're always going to have that, you know, they're constantly swimming upstream. So it's kind of a lot of, of work that needs to be done um, or, or, or kind of to support individuals in going through this process and then continuing to live it out. And I think that's why one of the, the wonderful things that's emerged from the Good Ancestor movement already is a sense of community among this kind of um, radical group of, of wealth holders who want to do, th you know, they want to live differently. And, and they want, I guess they want to remind each other that they're, they're not crazy, that they're just living a really radical path in line with their values. And to be able to share that with people, like-minded peers is really special. Mm. And I appreciate that every family is individual and so there's not kind of a, a, a standard path in, in terms of this but in, in relation to how families start their journey with you is that typically somebody within the family reaching out and going this resonates there's something here that really resonates and second part of that question is do you then find any challenges where there's differing attitudes across the family to towards that world so so perhaps somebody who took takes the more traditional view of wealth accumulation as we would typically know it versus the redistribution of wealth D does that come up in the families that you work with and, and how, how would you suggest if someone is listening to that and that resonates they, they sort of start that conversation yeah at the, at the moment we're either mainly dealing with individuals who might be part of a wider you know a wealthy family and 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 maybe their their family members don't you know they're, they're not interested or that they, they don't really share these values so we'll help to support them on their own journey and, and potentially with their own um fat nuclear family um or a, a family or a couple will come to us kind of already aligned maybe with you know there's often you know differences in uh and comfort levels and um things to be resolved but um so but we, yeah we're not not typically engaging with a whole family uh where there are lots of different views um at, at, at the moment um, and that tends to be we're definitely supporting some people who are in that position but it would be a very long-term kind of journey in in supporting the rest the rest of the family if that's indeed appropriate you know um yeah and so, i guess the reassurance there as well is that if there are people who are listening and going well this sounds great it really resonates with how i feel and my attitudes to it but the rest of my family perhaps don't feel that way is that there is an avenue that you can provide to help those individuals to explore that and to, to satisfy what, what there you mentioned about the kind of itch that you had around moving from the, the career in law in, into what you're doing now. 
if people are feeling that itch around their own wealth, you can provide an avenue to explore that. Yeah, absolutely. A big part of what we're trying to do is to activate agency and wealth holders, and that's agency among their advisors in being able to communicate what they what's important to them and what they want and how they want to steward their wealth. It's also agency within their own family system um, and, you know, in their relation to their own feelings about their wealth. And so, um, you know, people are always welcome to get in touch with us and, you know, join our community. And and that might be through doing an educational programme. It might be um, just participating in, you know, a couple of, community events that, that we do um, and just understanding more about what, what it is that we're doing and, and trying to gain a sense of uh, agency around what, what is it that I could do? What, it, what is it that I could do in my, that's in my sphere of influence right now that will help me feel more aligned um, with my values? Because um, it's not, you know, I think a lot of people end up in a situation where they they want to take their family the rest of their family on the journey with them around um their values and it's 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 just not always possible um immediately and so really giving people the the tools that they need to actually think about how they can remodel things and 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 serve their own values with their in their own position as a first step um is really useful yeah, um, that's fantastic. And c- can you give us a, a feel? And again, I appreciate that every family, if every situation is is different, but in terms of the kind of challenges that we face as a society moving forward, and then how you match the redistribution of wealth to those challenges, can you give us a, a sort of a feel of what the the redistribution looks like in in that? And obviously, without giving specific. Um, details but just as a a general feel yeah so again it comes back to that broader framework around how can we support these values driven wealth holders who want to be part of creating a fairer society and a more regenerative economy Um, how can we help them to, to build that new economy and the strategies that we employ in terms of redistribution are to fund the, you know, the, the, the grassroots organizations and movements that are on the front lines of, of shaping kind of, you know, affordable housing. And um, we're working a bit with the New Economics Foundation and, and involving them in some of our work um, around uh, the Green New Deal and, and the, the way that they're trying to shape policy and empower all the different actors on the ground um, in, in terms of like community organizations that are trying to change the way that we um, have agreed to organize ourselves as a global economy. Um, and so a lot of focus on strengthening this, the movement uh, towards building this new economy, which is decarbonized, which is fairer. Um, but also a really key strategy is, is about provide, using capital as a tool to absorb risk for communities and innovators, people that are bringing to life new solutions, whether that's kind of like clean technology or uh, whether it's community-led housing for people that have been traditionally marginalized and excluded from the economy through like funding community land trusts. 
um, or you know other uh, like housing cooperatives and things, things that are going to create systemic change in our economy um, and deal with you know real social problems. There's also an element of thinking about um, we, we sort of define radical redistribution as, as redistribution, which is regenerative and reparative. Um, and so the re- reparative element is all about what, what does what could repair look like, and and some of some of these people have you know the, the a part of our community might have direct links to things like slavery and colonialism, and um, others feel that um, they've been part of a system that has benefited from kind of Western imperialism and um, and also you know. It, the extraction of natural resources so you know people with link, links to the oil industry and you know they want to think about well, how, what does it look like to repair that um because i've benefited from that activity um and so um helping them to come up with sort of guiding principles which will inform their redistribution and, and really give them a sense of peace and sort of reconciliation in terms of how their their wealth uh, you know, was derived and, and how, you know, what, what harm it might have caused to communities and people groups and, and the planet. Um, there's a great guy who's part of our community, but is in the US and he was a, uh, an inheritor and he, he actually redistributed all his inheritance. Um, and his, the, the inheritance derived from uh, the meatpacking industry and so I, I think that he's really interested in things like regenerative farming because he feels that um, his wealth uh, kind of con- contributed to the degradation of the food systems and things like that. And so um, it, it, it can actually be like a really beautiful and healing process for people, I think. Yeah, and I, I get the impression from, from what you're saying there that the environment you're providing to explore these kind of issues is, is a very safe um, environment. You mentioned earlier that there's no judgment around that side of it. It's just somewhere to go. This has happened. It's a fact of, of where wealth has come from. But here's an environment where we can actually explore that and do something different with um, that wealth than, again, what we would see as the sort of traditional route for that. Yeah, that's something that's really important to me because, um, you know, I think we, we always speak in the language of invitation so there's always an invitation for people to reflect on on these things rather than you know us telling them that this is what they need to do you know let them really guide um guide the discussions and invite us into that process um and yeah it's just very important for people to have uh an independent space which is safe and uh where they can explore what does bravery and courage look like for me to, to get me from a place where I'm, you know, feeling really anxious and crippled about not living in alignment with my values and, how, you know, how do I get there? And so we very much see ourselves as a almost like a strategic partner, but, you know, a, re- a really safe space for people to play around with different ideas and then and get to a position of strength where they feel like they want to go ahead and um, you know, do some quite radical things, which is just a joy to um, be part of. And, you know, as you can imagine, we enjoy really uh, incredible relationships with these people. Some of these people are just amazing and just wonderful to spend time with. They're, you know, really thoughtful people, really 
you know, strong social conscience and um, think about, uh, you know, tax as, as, an, as a, a way, a means of, um, as an extension of their citizenship, you know, it's kind of radically different. And, and I also, I always make a point of saying, you know, I spent 10 years of my life helping people to accumulate more than they need and in, in, in a lot of cases and, and avoiding people on minimizing taxes and, you know, very upfront about that because it's, this is, you know, part, it's part, that's very much part of my story and what got me here and I've evolved and I'm doing something different, but you know, I, that's, it's just part of the, it's part of the journey, isn't it? So there's a, that saying about being the change you want to see. And it, it sounds as if that's the kind of, you're doing that both through the good ancestor movement, but also the work you're doing with the individuals that you're, you're then working with. Exactly. So it's, it's, it's moving away from this idea of, okay, well, I can put my money into good things and, and, uh, you know, give grants and do good philanthropy and just and, and make sure that my money is getting a, around to good places. It's more about, you know, the movement of, cap of capital is a really important part in the puzzle. But um, it's really about how do I begin to embody this new regenerative economy and fairer society that I want to see that will help me to live in alignment with my values. And that's a process that takes time. And I've had to go through that process myself, you know, decide choosing to embody what I believe to be, you know, really important, really important, you know, time in our lives to, to build this new economy. And I'm doing that personally through um, the Good Ancestor movement. Fantastic. And where can the audience find out more about you and uh, the Good Ancestor Movement? So you can find us at www.goodancestormovement.com. I am on Twitter. Um, I, th I always forget my handle, but it's, I think it's at Steph, P-H, not F, <laughs> uh, at Steph underscore Robbie. Uh, and I'm on LinkedIn as well. Um, so you can follow our progress there. Fantastic. And we will provide links in the show notes for um, anyone who wants to um, go and get in touch um, with Steph. Um, I found the conversation um, fascinating, really enjoyable. And uh, you can, the, the passion with what you, uh, that you do with what you do is, is apparent in, in the way that you um, speak about it. So um, I've really enjoyed it. And thank you very much for your time and, and sharing with us today. Well, thank you for being such a generous listener. Thanks for listening. I really do appreciate it. If you found the show helpful, please consider leaving a review on iTunes and remember to subscribe to our newsletter. If what I've covered in the show resonates with what you are facing in your own family business, I can help. I provide consultancy support to family businesses of all sizes, so please get in touch if you'd like to know more. Head over to fanbizpodcast.com forward slash work with Russ. Until next time, take care.